This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. Hit the red button. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And oftentimes that starts with the carnivore cures, meat only elimination diet. Today, I'm excited to share this interview with you. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Peter Ballerstedt. If you've been in the meat based community for a while, I am so sure you've already heard some of his talks or his lectures. Peter is a wonderful resource information when it comes to environment, sustainability, climate, all the things that we are scared to eat meat from a climate and if this is good for our future generations perspective. In our conversation, Peter and I talk a lot about so many different components that go into one. We discuss sustainability or what is better for the environment or for the climate or for our resources. We talk about human health and what is a proper diet. We think about numbers that we are told in whether it's corporate media or we hear from our dietetic associations or from the RDA. And we talk about these nuances of are we looking at the whole picture or are we looking at the right picture? This conversation brings up so much good information and even had me thinking about my beliefs of regenerative agriculture. There's no question that regenerative agriculture is beneficial for our environment. But does that mean that CAFOs are always so negative? There's a lot of questions that come into this conversation, and there may even be more questions that come out of it. But what we need to do is make sure that we are the healthiest we can be so that we can even consider these environmental questions. What we need to do is to make sure and take care of ourselves because as we are healthy, we can then take care of our lands. As Peter brings up, if you are on the lower rung of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where you're even concerned about where your next Plate of food is going to come, or what shelter or water you have. 
you don't have the ability to even concern yourselves of climate and the sustainability of whatever you're eating. You're just trying to survive. But if we take care of ourselves, a lot of this can change. Peter Ballerstedt, also known as Don Pedro, the Sotfather of the Ruminati, earned his bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Georgia and his doctorate at the University of Kentucky. He was the Forage Extension Specialist at Oregon State University from 1986 to 1992, and he currently works in the forage seed industry. Peter's personal experience has led him to re-examine human diet and health. Peter is an advocate for ruminant animal agriculture and the essential role of animal source foods in the human diet. He strives to build bridges between producers, consumers, and researchers across a wide variety of scientific disciplines. Peter and Nancy live in Western Oregon with their two dogs, Connor and Nani. I loved my conversation with Peter because one of the reasons I consider myself the people's nutritionist is because I advocate for wellness for all. Most people can afford ground beef and eggs and some amounts of butter, especially if you can tolerate the most conventional forms. And these foods will bring you far better health than most foods that come from plant-based foods. And that's why I really enjoyed my conversation with Peter. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've seen so many of your talks. As I told you, I saw you at Carnivory Con, and I was always excited to have you on and really talk about the environmental impacts of meat and for all the other foods that we eat. And I just wanted to dive a little deep on this, especially since there's a lot of demonization of meats these days. But before we get into all of that, if you can introduce yourself to the people that are listening and watching. Thank you, Judy. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. It's nice to think back on the days of Carnivory Con, and hopefully that'll come again. Yes. Um, my name's Peter Ballersted. I've been given the name of Don Pedro, the sod father of the Ruminati. Uh, my role seems to have evolved into being a bridge between the the forage agriculture tribe that I'm trained to support and that I work professionally in, and then the metabolic health space. So that's pretty broad. Obviously, people who are carnivorous are a subset of that, and I certainly share some affinity with that group. Background, uh, I've worked as a forage extension specialist at Oregon State University. I've worked in high tech. I've worked in uh, I presently work in the forage seed industry. I serve on a number of national and international forage, uh, grasslands, agriculturally focused organizations, and I support some other efforts around the metabolic health and nutrition space as well. Well, thank you for that. Um, and let's, let's dive right into it. So, you know, in the mainstream or corporate media, there's all this talk about how we should eat more plant-based, how for the environment, for the betterment of the environment, that we should be eating less meat because of the footprint, because of the carbon, the methane. And, you know, what does that all mean for us? Emissions, sustainability, life cycle, all your thoughts. Yeah, all my thoughts <laughs> in what, you've got a day and a half, and even that would get us just barely started. Uh, first of all, there have been some estimates, and basically what they show is the idea that we can have a significant impact on emissions, certainly from a modern industrial country such as the United States, by our dietary choices really is a flawed precept. And that 
estimates have been made as to what that impact would be if all animals agriculture was removed from the United States. And it's on the order of something like two and a half percent reduction in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And that comes with some penalties like imbalancing the food system. And the the author used the authors use the phrase of creating nutrient deficiencies, and I would edit that to exacerbating nutrient deficiencies. Because I think it's clear, certainly from a global perspective, that humanity doesn't have enough animal source food in their diet. And I think that if we knew how to look for it, we'd see that in the United States as well. So there's that. Uh, As I just kind of mentioned, humanity's diet's already plant-based. So maybe that's the problem because calories coming from plants are going to come from sugar and starch primarily. In industrial societies, you may get more coming from industrial oils, but, you know, so you could add those into the mix. And I think that would, you know, what sugar, cereals and industrial oils represent 60% of calories in Americans diet. So how much more do you want? The majority of protein, and that's a topic we should come back to, but protein globally, a majority is coming from plants in humanity's diet. And in the United States, it's only slightly more than half comes from animal source food. And, you know, cereals is the single largest source of protein in humanity's diet. It's larger than all animal source foods combined. And I'm willing to suggest and defend the idea that that's a problem. So again, how much more plant-based would you like it to be when we have compelling evidence that that in fact may be the dry, a part of the drivers of the chronic diseases, the non-infectious diseases, which are the largest killers globally, far greater than the infectious diseases. So, so the idea that doing that harder would be part of the solution is also flawed right. from a health perspective. Um, and then we just have to accept the idea that anything that we do to produce food or to harvest wild stocks, whether that be in the ocean or from wildlife, is going to have an impact. And we're not really sophisticated yet in terms of weighing those costs and benefits. So that's kind of my first twitch response to the argument. And and I'd also point out that we don't, we, we, well, first of all, how many times do we have to talk about cow farts before we accept the, it's, it's belches. So, you know, that problem is there. And then if we look at all agriculture or, or emissions, so the EPA, US EPA puts out a, uh, sources and sinks budget estimating anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions for the U.S. and agriculture, all of it represents something slightly less than 10% as I'm remembering the figures. Uh, All of animal agriculture is somewhere around 4%. 
And beef alone is 2%. And again, we have people who are saying that, you know, this is, you know, cows produce more than all trans. Well, no, we understand that's flawed. Um, power generation is somewhere around 20 some per- 25, 28% somewhere in there. Transportation is a similar number. And this is at the same time that when they estimate carbon sequestration through sinks, the total sink is somewhere in 12% of total emissions range. Well, that can only come from agriculture and forestry. So the only industries that currently are capable of sequestering carbon at any kind of scale are the targets that people have for reduction. And if we're just going to focus on those, then anytime we till the soil, we're going to have less carbon sequestration than when we have grazing animals on forages. So these are all little points that rattle around in my head when I hear people say, we need to eat less beef to, you know, the the ultimate is the idea that you're going to stop serving beef on your intercontinental jet flights. Oh, right. The irony. Um, a couple things. Yep. So I, I didn't realize that most of our protein from a plant-based perspective is from grains. I thought it was the beans. And, and so it's interesting to see that, especially since from all protein digestibility scores, the wheat and grains have the lowest digestibility in terms of protein absorptions. Yeah. And- uh, I mean, part of it is also uh, the cereals grow in areas that a lot of the legumes don't mm-hmm. widespread across the, you know, f- a, a large swath of what we call arable land um, is not suitable for some of these legumes or pulses, okay. depending on what part of the world people are from. And the quality of the protein is not only the digestibility of it, it's the amino acids that are provided. And and so that critical little point is, is still lacking in a lot of the conversations. Yes, yes. Um, agreed. So knowing all of this, why why are we, why is corporate media, why why are all of the environmentalists focusing on we need to reduce meat consumption? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah. So I've learned that if you want to start an argument, you use either all or never. You know, always or never. You always do this, you, you know, whatever. Okay. So I don't know about all. What I do know is that there has been for a very long time an overlap between the environmentalist movement and the animal rights movement or and people who choose to pursue a vegetarian lifestyle for whatever reason. So that overlap. And now we see that the emissions and their accepted contribution toward climate change 
is being used as a tool against animal agriculture, writ large, beef in particular. And there's some of the people who are involved in the creation of these faux food products that are very explicit. They're attacking the beef industry for any number of reasons, not the least of which is their business case. So there's that. You know, I, I think that part of it is got to be that people believe people that for whatever reason they respect and so they hear these things being said by people. And and I think it was Lierre Keith who gave me the idea that, you know, if if you take legitimate concerns and you couple them with bad information, you make bad decisions. So it's completely reasonable for people to be concerned about their health. Now, if people have told you that red meat causes cancer or any other number of chronic diseases, okay, so you make a decision. And then if on top or at the same time, somebody says, oh, and by the way, they're destroying the planet, well, it's completely reasonable you'd be concerned about the environment. So now you have this reinforcing sort of message, and okay, you can take that forward. There's a lot of money being made right now in the name of you know, well, ESG, um, environmental sustainability governance, the, this idea that this should somehow guide investments and corporate governance. And again, you know, I, I was just for the last several hours attending remotely uh, a webinar on the global agenda for sustainable livestock effort. And it was the North American sort of perspective. And so there's a lot of great information in there. And then we hear things like nutrient dense cabbage, really. <laughs> so we, we have these terms that are part of the conversation, but we don't understand that the definition of nutrient dense is low fat because it's there. They assume the people that gave us the official definition that fat is not a nutrient. And so it can only dilute the essential phytonutrients. All right. So, so it's a, it's an interesting landscape that I get to try to navigate my way through because we're constantly having to check. Well, what do you mean by sustainability? What do you mean by, you know, protein? What do you mean by these other things? Um, we, we, we really aren't at a time when we can assume we know what somebody else means. And so we just have to find a way to have a conversation where we can say, why do you think that's a healthy diet? Oh, because it aligns with the dietary guidelines? You know, what, what, why do you think that a lack of dietary fiber, for example, is a hallmark of an unhealthy diet? Right. So, um, and, and these are conversations that we just can't have, you know, one and done. We, we have to kind of have a process and an ongoing dialogue. The part that was hard for me. So I wrote a book about why animal-based foods is the proper way to eat. And, and then I did some of that research using one of those old EPA reports. I think it was from 2014 or 16. And I saw that the cow... Uh, methane contribution was not that large. And, and I, and the data was there as long as you went through a lot of the report pages. And that's the part that is confusing to me is why do we see these numbers where they share all the percentages from the cows? 
you know, why are the, I, I don't know, the, the beef industry, why aren't they fighting back? Or if they are fighting back, why are we not hearing this? Mm-hmm. Many different questions in there. Let me just start by saying a lot of this, you've got a very asymmetric dialogue taking place. You've got people who are trained and by nature want to deal from data and share data and talk about that. You've got other people that that's never been because they're agenda driven. They're not data driven. And so you have the, the agenda driven people who will make statements you know, well, sort of like those that gave us the dietary guidelines, right? We can't imagine any harm that could come from this. So there's no reason not to do this. There were people telling them there's potential for harm, but they were kind of acting from a more science trained basis. And so in the public discourse, their voices were marginalized. Okay. Similar thing. We have research that takes place that leads to estimates. These are largely model-driven things. So it takes a while to kind of get the pieces in place and, okay, fine. So you've got that. You've got the the splashy headline, and then you've got the lagging sort of data that keeps sort of reactively coming out. But by that time, everybody believes that cows produce more than all transportation. Number two, a lot of what's driven in industry is sort of look at them, don't look at us, right? I mean, one of my favorite things to throw out is that um, U.S. healthcare industry emissions are estimated to be 10%. Now, it's not an apples to apples comparison. So, for example, the EPA will attribute everything to power, and say that's 20. Well, this other said, well, how much power does, you know, the, and how much food does the healthcare industry use? And then they tried to come up with a value. The, the point there is that healthcare has an, a significant impact. And right now, anything that goes into the diet, sustainable healthcare, environmental impact statement area is heavily influenced by the assumed what's a healthy diet. And so you get another one of those reinforcing paradigms there that, well, if everybody just ate more plants, it would be healthier, whatever. Yeah, no. Um, So, and on top of that, you've got industries who in today's world, if they say things about being green or being whatever their target, that improves their stock performance. Okay. I, I hate to be too... Uh, skeptical about all this, but uh, somebody explained it to me that way, that on the one hand, you have the beef and the dairy industry that for a decade at least has been doing benchmarking, Mm -hmm. has been saying, this is where we are, this is where we were, this is where we say we are going toward in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, water use, land use, all those things. They have specific milestones along the way. So they have a plan for achieving and a way to check. And then you have industries that step up and say, oh yeah, we're all for this by then. They don't even know where they're starting from, let alone milestones along the way. And I said to somebody at one of these meetings, how is that going to work? And he said, well, what's going to happen is the senior management will benefit from the statement because it improves the stock and their retirement. By the time the due date comes, they're gone. They're retired. Right. 
It's the next manager's job to deal with it. Well, okay, that's a little cynical, but there you are. When when you see the, like I said before, the only industries that can sequester carbon at scale currently are agriculture and forestry. Right. And And what's going to happen here shortly is you're going to find people somehow acquiring the carbon sequestration from agriculture and applying it to their own business, which takes it away from agriculture. You can't count it twice. And so, okay, it's a potential revenue stream, but then it comes back to bite you Mm -hmm. because it's been taken away from your industry. And, And there's another key point to try to wrap up my long-winded answer to your question. We've been using the wrong metrics. Okay. So it's been accepted now uh, by IPCC in their science section that using GWP 100, global warming potential 100, to estimate the warming potential of enteric methane, that would be from the rumen, the burps, is inappropriate because it's been overestimating its impact by a factor of three to four times. So so what the background is that we've got photosynthesis taking CO2 from the atmosphere, making plant matter out of it, carbohydrate. The ruminant animal eats that. A certain amount of that CO uh, of that f- carbohydrate is going to be reduced to methane and burped out to the atmosphere, but then it's going to be oxidized to CO two within a decade. Okay, so that's a cycling of CO two. Sure. There's no m- new CO two being introduced. Now, what that says is if you've got steady or declining herds, there's no contribution to warming. This is accepting all the arguments that are in place. Whereas if you're burning fossil fuels or emitting methane from any other sort of industrial process, using GWP 100 has been underestimating its greenhouse, its warming potential by a factor of three to four times. So most of the plant source foods that we're going to be consuming are heavily dependent on petrochemicals, for example, for fuel to drive tractors and harvesting equipment and whatever and whatever. So that hasn't been part of the evaluation of environmental footprint of protein. For example, when we look at just a raw protein yield and the emissions it takes to produce that, On top of that, we've also not been appropriately valuing the nutritive value of the food products. So when people, for example, have looked at on a digestible or utilizable lysine basis, the impact of dairy, the footprint of dairy becomes comparable to you know, plant juice production. And that's before we apply the three to four time reduction. So it's quite arguable that we could now, if we were using sufficiently sophisticated metrics, that we could be pulling the production of animal source foods from ruminants, certainly, 
down below the production of plant analogs. So uh, part of this is worldview. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody reminded me that a worldview are like lenses. They're not what we look at. They're what we look through at the rest of the world. So there's worldview, there's economic interests, there's the lagging science behind the claims, and then there's the metrics that we use to define and evaluate these things. I mean, with all numbers, they can be manipulated and portrayed in a way that makes sense for our favor of whatever we are trying to portray. And if the general consensus is that meat is bad, it's just easier to portray and move numbers and allocate them in a way that's more favorable to non-animals. So that fully makes sense. The part that when I was doing the research, that was a little frustrating for me, and I can understand it from a, we are a good company, but I would see that as much as we know that the greenhouse gases aren't really responsible by these cows, but even still, the beef industry is doing all these things to reduce emissions. And so they have, um, there was one study I saw where they're feeding cows probiotics to help them reduce the emissions. And so I feel that type of information that gets out there is it's almost the beef industry is admitting that it is our fault, right? It is our fault Mm. that we are emitting. And so we are going to do things to reduce it by sharing, I guess, headlines like that. It shares that, yeah, we admit that it is our fault that the emissions are so bad. Well, yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. I I, I think that certainly there's the the feeling amongst many that I've I interact with taking the argument seriously about impact and saying, okay, what is our impact? How could we make sure that we're minimizing it? The other side of that is that methane represents an energy loss. And so if you can do something Mm -hmm. to lower that economically, then you're getting greater efficiency. And so that could result in, in, you know, better profit, which itself is part of sustainability. I mean, part, a, another aspect to the whole sustainability space is we tend to myopically focus only on one of the three legs of sustainability. There are three, you know, societal, economic, as well as environmental. And then even worse, we only focus on one aspect of one of those legs. When we focus only on greenhouse gas emissions. And the problem with that is we're, we're dealing with what I think is technically called a wicked problem, that there's all of these different factors feeding in. And, you know, tweaking one is undoubtedly not going to give you, if you don't pay attention to the others, you're, you're likely to cause, uh, not achieve your goal. Um, let's let, put it that way, and and quite possibly actually create problems. So I think the beef industry, and again, I twitch whenever someone says it, and I just found myself saying it: the beef industry, beef are cattle are on the inventory of farms in all fifty states. So if you want local food, it's beef. But clearly, they're going to look differently, different depending on what state you're in. You know, the, the and all of those impacts are going to be different depending on the different ecosystems in which beef is produced. So and and 
you, you've got, I think the figure is somewhere around three quarters of a million farms and ranches list beef on their inventory. But then you get down to like only 75,000 feedlots. And, and then you get down to, you know, four big packers. And, and so which part of the beef production system that we have are we talking about? Are we talking about the cow-calf operator in Colorado? Are we talking about the stocker beef operator in Mississippi? You know, are we talking about the dairy beef operator in Pennsylvania? And, and again, are, are they selling directly to suburban Philadelphia or are they shipping it to, you know, a feedlot and then ultimately into a plant or they're retaining ownership all the way through you know, all these differences? So, and, and they tend to be kind of individualistic. They tend to be kind of independent. And so there, there's a lot of these things involved with it. Uh, one thing's for sure, they have to do something. They, they, they can't continue to just sort of, well, let me focus on do, what I'm doing is good. And everybody should know that and they should just accept that and they should leave me alone. That's not the world that we live in. So there, there has to be a way to not get everybody involved, but get more people involved in telling the story. And part of my message and frustration is to move, sorry, the people away from talking about themselves as part of the protein industry. I know how you got there. I, I know about lipophobia. I get it, but we need to get past that. That's so 80s. Let's just get on to and get people within the animal ag in general aware of the really good news about effective lifestyle interventions to reverse so many of these chronic diseases, which aren't only a problem in high-income countries, but across the globe, these are the drivers of an unsustainable healthcare model. And we don't talk about that in the sustainability space. Right. And, and the people who are talking about sustainability within the livestock community, frankly, don't feel like they can talk about that. So they don't feel like they're qualified. They, you know, they feel like, well, if we talk about that, we'll just be, you know, cut off. And then I listen to the dietitians that they bring on board to talk about, you know, balance and moderation and something from every food group. <laughs> I was like, okay, let me just be polite. Thank you for coming. So do you think some of the, you know, how do we fix this broken way that we're, or myopic way that we're viewing things? It sounds like one way is maybe we start focusing on sustainability and uh, w what this means for human health. Like, how can we start changing the general public's view of the beef or animal products is what's contributing to adverse impacts on the environment? Well, uh, I would roll it back a step because I really don't think the public looks at the environmental issue as top of mind. Okay. I, I think that's a policy thing. I think that's some things that a few people who are very loud and in some cases okay. powerful, but I think people are worried about what can I afford, mm. especially these days. Yes. So that's an issue. 
I, I think that we, we need to defeat the idea that animal source food is a health hazard. I think that I have three sort of principal things that I got from a colleague. One is animal source food is essential for public health. Yes. Full stop. That doesn't have to be meat, by the way. Animal source food is, you know, not all animal source food is meat. Second is that there's no sustainable food systems without livestock agriculture in general and ruminant animal agriculture in particular, which means that we can't have a sustainable food system without, without animal source foods. And so there's there's lots we could talk about there. And then the third is this is part of our ancestry. Right. Animal source food is our cultural history, regardless of what culture we're coming from. And these are, you know, the, the, the preparation of food is how family traditions have been passed on, right? And, and learning things and sharing a meal is part of our community. And we need to emphasize that stuff and, and get it more aware, a greater awareness to the public. And somewhere in there is value to that. These highly processed food-like substances that were being marketed so heavily are not part of our cultural heritage, right. and they are not part of our history. I was having a conversation with one physician who had told me that, you know, he's up in the Chicago area and he's, you know, had some spare ribs marinating or whatever. And it's like, gee, why did spare ribs become a thing in certain communities? Well, because it was cheap, right? It had no other use. It was a waste product. Right. As they were packaging shoulders and hams, they had all the, well, people figured out, look, I can get this. I can. Now, how do I make it so that it's edible? And, and that also has value in the conversation. You know, we, we need to get people to understand that there are certain essential nutrients that are only provided by animal source foods. And there are others that are best provided by animal source foods. And we've been evaluating those improperly in the conversation, you know, so that, uh, you know, I'll just make up a, a, a milligram of iron from heme iron is listed as if it's equivalent to a milligram of iron from filings that you put into your cereal product. You know, and, and, and this also ripples down to the environmental things, because if I'm worried about phosphorus in my diet, for whatever reason, the phosphorus that cereals, nuts and legumes provides is virtually unavailable to monogastrics. And and so how does that then influence the nutrient transfer from productive areas to the human calf? I mean, cities. Right. Right. Because now we have that just as we do with commercial swine and poultry. And they're concerned about this and trying to find a solution. You could say the same thing about nit nitrogen from protein. Mm -hmm imbalances. And I saw that pop up in a meme. Somebody tried to get that going and it didn't go anywhere, but that was interesting to see that, you know, basically if, if we're over, what is it? The protein synthesis 
is limited by the essential amino acid that's present mm-hmm. in the least amount relative to its need. Yeah. And so if it takes, you know, uh, again, making it up a milligram of lysine and you only have half, then all of the others, you're only going to produce half of uh, uh, the synthesis possible. Well, what happens to that those amino acids, well, they get deaminated. We have carbon skeletons for fuel or whatever, and the rest gets excreted. Well, is that efficient if we're going to talk about sustainability? Or how do we incorporate all of the nutrition that we get from animal source foods, not only protein yield, which again, isn't true protein, it's crude protein. And, and the important difference between those two doesn't get into the conversation. So a lot of this becomes really technical. And the best thing that I came up with is, look, the further away you get from a diet that includes sufficient animal source foods, the more difficult it gets to make it work. So just make sure you get enough animal source foods and you really don't have to worry about much, right? Um, Maybe that's oversimplifying it just a little bit. But again, I I think that we have these highly processed food replacement issues and, and, and we have these unnatural dietary patterns that are being recommended. And at the end of the day, maybe they're not, maybe providing sufficient essential nutrition. And that alone then could be part of our disordered eating habits. Right. And so all of these patterns start to show up. Uh, the colleague from North Dakota State University who ran a feeding study with um, female growing pigs where they tried to mimic the NHANES diet and, and the attending veterinarian stopped the diet, stopped the study early because the results were considered inhumane uh, from what they were seeing to pee. Okay. And, and one of the things that they see when they feed insufficient lysine is they f- see more subcutaneous fat, more intramuscular fat, and smaller loin eye or back muscle size. And that's from lysine. And cereal-based diets are limiting in lysine. And and that's when we just look at like the raw material. If we take that material, like wheat, for example, and we make something brown and crispy out of it, we take that lysine and we irreversibly bind it to carbohydrate. And that becomes unavailable to us. So whatever little bit was there, it's now not there at all as far as we're concerned. And so you think about people that are eating a lot of these processed cereal products and restricting for whatever reason animal source foods, where is their lysine going to come from? Right. Yes. Um, I mean, I could tell my personal story. I mean, I was plant-based for 12 years. I struggled with the mental illness I struggle with depression and anxiety and a full on eating disorder and had no idea that my plant-based diet was a big culprit of that. I never once did anyone ever say that I needed to change my diet, but always they recommended me doing either therapy or um, pharmaceutical medications. And then Mm -hmm. as I interview more and more experts, 
I hear about, like we just talked about the limiting amino acids. And as we are becoming a culture where we're recommending our children to drink almond milk versus cow's milk, right. And removing mm-hmm. even though uh, the fat in our dairy, we never consider, well, it's not really the protein we're looking at. It's the amino acid profile, as you mentioned, and we don't even consider that. And then I see in all the fast food restaurants that we are advocating for these plant-based burgers that are by the pound, much more expensive, but people are really trying to be healthier. And and for me, I did the same thing for 12 years. I at Burger King, I would buy the plant-based burger. They had the Boca burger before all of the new ones came around. And I would eat that and spend more money thinking I was doing myself a service as well as the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate that we are not only wasting money, obviously the climate and the resources of that, the burden on that, but we're also harming ourselves in the entire Mm -hmm. process because we are Mm -hmm. really, really misinformed. Uh, yeah, it, it's um, so one one thing that came to my mind, and it's a comment I got from someone, which is we, we can't replace food production with food processors. And so if we're if we're concerned about the food supply, then taking something that's arguably edible by humans and processing it into some other product to be eaten by humans. That's never a 100% efficient process, right? right? So we're losing, there's been no, and, and the person I got that comment from said, well, so, okay, you're figuring the, the emissions footprint of this manufactured product, but it's, there's nothing new there. So how do you calculate that, right? I mean, it's like it's infinity. It's it's whatever you've never. Okay. Number two is I'm sorry that you had that experience and you're not alone, which is why you're doing what you're doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, ultimately I'm for team human here. And, and one thing I got from someone in another realm is, um, you you can have one of two primary sort of guiding principles. You can be for minimizing human impact or maximizing human flourishing. And you will never get to the latter by the former. But what we've seen is as human flourishing increases, then we can afford to worry about things like environmental issues, which we should do. But when we're real low on Maslow's hierarchy, that's not a concern for us. You know, here and now today is the concern for my children and my family and whatever. And for many people in the world, that's a case. And it's gotten worse over the last couple of years because of some other things that have gone on. But before all that happened, we were at a place where between a quarter and a fifth of children under five years old were stunted globally due to a lack of animal source food in their diet. Mm. Now, okay, we could take the step and say, due to a lack of essential nutrients, and then the rest of that is that are best provided by animal source foods, because supplementation, you know, from a vitamin pill is not a viable option for the majority of humanity, right, at this point. Uh, supplementation may be for some, but we have a lot of people that we need to sustainably increase the animal source food supply globally. You know, a, a third of women of childbearing age globally are, are anemic. 
Right. And and there have been studies looking at B12 supply or B12 content in human breast milk, and we see deficient levels in high-income countries mm-hmm. due to any number of reasons. Sometimes it's genetic, right? I mean, but a lot of times it's because people have been told this is a healthy diet, and unfortunately that healthy diet isn't. Um, so finding the right way to get the message is one that I know I haven't found yet. My point is to try to introduce all these different audiences to each other so that we can get all these people talking with each other and then keep pointing to information that's available has been for decades mm-hmm. just hasn't been part of the com- for whatever reason you know and meanwhile part of my message is you know when you are making you know let's talk to your audience who has accepted this well first of all they had to be convinced enough to try it and then they have the experience and they say damn yes that's right well so you know, don't listen to the same people that sold you the diet that made you sick in the first place. And they are the same people right. for many of the same reasons. So so there's that. Number two, when you improve your health, you are improving the world in a way that's probably more impactful than these promised results. Right. You know, to put it crudely, what I see going on is... People are saying, you know, it's it's more, you know, they're promising results in, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, but they're going to increase the chances of people losing their toes, right, in the next however many years. And so, again, back to human flourishing, back right. to... Uh, somebody made the point about, would you like to be able to pick up your grandchildren? Right. Have the physical strength and stature to be, you know, exercise, you know, with your kids or your, you know, would you like to be there to walk your children, you know, wherever? Um, and so that's a reality as well. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't eat. One of my rules, though, is whatever you eat, it better be something you enjoy eating, right? Otherwise, why are you doing this? And if you're doing this because you think it's going to improve your health or improve the environment, then I want you to take a hard look at that because I'm pretty sure that stress and all these other things have a significant impact on life. And if you're doing things that don't contribute to the quality of your life and these other, maybe that has a negative impact as well. So part of what I'm trying to do is just, you know, what is it? The secret of enlightenment is to lighten up and just, you know, um, enjoy whatever life you've been given the opportunity to live and free people from this guilt. Right. I was doing some research the other day about um, just even obesity. So I think 43% of America is obese now. They say that one in five Americans will die of some complications from obesity. 
And even still, as you were talking about how the medical industry also has a footprint, I think the data was from the CDC. And it said that the average person that's obese also spends so on a burden on themselves is an additional $1,800 per person in the family that has to spend more on medical, whatever it may be because of their obesity. So there are many, many ramifications of eating unhealthy. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is even within the carnivore community, as much as most people know that meat is good for us, and it will reverse a lot of the metabolic syndrome conditions, there's still a lot of belief that, well, yes, regenerative agriculture is good for the environment, but all the CAFOs and all the conventional meat that you're eating at the grocery stores is still bad for the environment. So if you're partaking in that some thoughts on that. First of all, we need to recognize that there's something called animal welfare. And that is the concern of everyone who's involved in animal agriculture or should be. And and there's lots of effort going into all that all the time. And then there's something called animal rights, which is something that I cannot support in any way, shape or form. And one person actually gave me the idea that if you're for animal rights, you cannot be for human rights. So I'll just let that one sort of float off into the ether. But it's it's a distinction that a lot of people don't see. And like I say, I'm for team human. So um, there's that. Number two is whatever those statistics were that we talked about earlier, that's today in the U.S. with U.S. ag today. So the idea that what we have today is we've we've talked about how that's not the driver of whatever crisis it is that, again, I think humanity's existential crisis is a lack of animal sourced food. And so whatever we need to do to address that and using appropriate technology, I mean, uh, part of this thing that I sat through today, they talked about how uh, U.S. No, they were talking about Canadian egg producers. So can Canadian egg producers today produce 50% more um, eggs with 50% less inputs than they did 50 years ago. So, okay, that's progress. Well, that progress often is accompanied by technology. Mm -hmm. And for a number of reasons, people get kind of weird when they see technology applied for food production. Okay, but that's just, if, if, if this is what you want, then these are the tools that we need to get there. And, and so we, again, I, I, I think a lot of this is the product of, well, I still think that red meat is bad. Like you said, it's, it's causing all this problem. Well, I, I, but okay, so you're telling me that there's something, some form of red meat that I still want to eat that's better. Great, sold. Okay. And I'm all for the freedom to produce and market so long as people are, you know, not lying and misrepresenting and whatever, I get that. Um, I, I think that there, there were, um, we, we need to focus. And as you said, those, those numbers for the general America, I mean, there was just the one estimate that now it's only 7% of the adult Americans have good metabolic cardiometabolic health. It used to be, you know, 12%. And so it's trending in the wrong way. There is the one person put together that said that if if the average adult American with type 2 diabetes could eliminate their medication use, 
Let's just speculate wildly that such a thing is possible, that there's such a thing as drug-free remission of type 2 diabetes, a condition that we all know is progressive and is chronic, and you're going to be on these medications for the rest of your life, like lifetime medication, right? I'm being really sarcastic here. So, okay, just for the audience who who's listening and doesn't get all the things. So if that average adult, adult American with type 2 diabetes could eliminate their medication use, they'd lower their carbon footprint 29% more than if they went from a high meat to a vegan diet based on this one analysis. So whatever that number is, okay, there's a number there. And we haven't yet started to address that. We're talking about a substance when we talk about animal source food in our diet that I would argue, as I've said before, is ancestral. I believe the people who say it drove our evolution. And we can now produce more of that than the natural environment is capable of supporting. Sure. Right? Okay. Okay. So that's part of what we have to do in order to allow coming 8 8 billion of our brothers and sisters, regardless of where they happen to live in the world, right? I mean, there there are people who talk about human beings as if they're the problem. And and when you do that, dark things are following close behind. We've seen it. And and we don't have to go too far back in history to talk about them. Uh, Again, I'm for team human. I'm for human flourishing. And the good news is there's really easy things that we can do to lower the global livestock footprint. It does. I mean, yes, we should keep looking for, you know, other things, but you know, when you've got 20% of the world's cattle in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's essentially not commercialized, certainly in Southern Africa, when you've got Brazil with three times the cattle that we have in North America, but but they produce less beef. So those, you know, animals have an impact for a number, you know, because they're living organisms. And, and yet they're not as productive as they could be in terms of a product. And if what we're going to look at is the impact, you know, f- per kilogram or pound of beef, then we have to look at those things. Also, there's just easy things that we can do, you know, animal health, you know, how much there's this idea that 40% of the food that's produced never gets consumed. So what can we do to reduce food waste? Um, There's also a fair amount of animal source food that gets condemned because of livestock diseases in various parts of the world, those are far more prevalent than they are in the United States. And so we can do things, we can share information, we can engage in research. And I've, I've termed that whole thing a ruminant revolution, mm-hmm. that in the 60s and 70s, we needed a green revolution to save a billion people from starvation when that was a quarter of humanity. Today, <laughs> I'm arguing that malnutrition is not only a caloric deficiency, it's this insufficient essential nutrition that manifests itself in many, many forms. Caloric insufficiency is still a scandal. (laughs) You know, when we have 
pre-pandemic 800 million people that were calorically undernourished. But at that time, we had 2.2 billion that were overweight or obese. Okay, (laughs) overfed but undernourished. How do we move beyond that? So I have a lot more questions than I have answers, I guess. You know, what? one question that a lot of people will ask is, well, what about the hormones, nitrates, antibiotics? Um, any thoughts around those? Oh, I've got thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, when, and again, all of this assumes when used as directed. Sure. And there's also monitoring protocols in place to make sure that that's the case. Okay. So in the United States, we can have confidence in the food supply. The difference in terms of hormones from a commercial feedlot steer that's been given exogenous hormones compared to one that hasn't is minuscule. Right. And you're going to get far more of those hormones from eggs or from butter then you're going to get from beef, regardless of whether it was implanted or not. Um, And then there are the plant analogs that are similar enough in some to produce a response, uh, which are orders of magnitude greater than anything you would get from beef. So that's the hormones, antibiotics, there are testing protocols to make sure that there, you know, the, there's not residues beyond some level of concern, which you could argue about, but that's what it is. And again, it's assuming appropriate use, and there's a lot of education and stewardship because the people involved in commercial agriculture understand that they can't lose antibiotics. It just can't be. Um, f- but they also understand that antibiotics aren't a replacement for proper nutrition and proper management. So it's it's an important tool that's part of not a replacement for other things. So uh, the, the presence of those, um, oh, nitrate, um, plants give you nitrate right. far more than, and, and that all came out before we even understood how important nitrite was in in our systems um so that's not a concern um for from my perspective and then we have a lot of products that are using celery salt or sea salt that are supplying nitrate but it's not from potassium nitrate so they can label it as something different than so uh, those are not concerns to me but if someone is concerned about it and they can afford, then by all means, buy the product that they feel comfortable buying. My ultimate concern is creating artificial barriers to entry. So some, you know, when you've heard somebody say, well, if you're not going to go 100% whatever label claim, then you shouldn't, you should just stay where you are. It's like, well, no, no, wrong, dead wrong, ain't no, but hell no. And and then, you know, the, the fuller explanation is, well, think about Pennington, think about uh, Atkins, think about the Eads, think about any of those sort of pioneers, although they weren't necessarily, you know what I mean, they're, they're people who were doing this in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Was that part of their protocol? No, it wasn't available. It's so 
Um, and if anything, the food system has gotten cleaner since then. Right. Um, so if it wasn't an essential requirement for them, why should it be for us now? And the, I, I use the analogy of, of this wooden, you could say wine barrel or rain barrel, where you've got wooden staves that make up the sides. Okay. That they are the sides. Um, and so you've got staves of differing length. So the amount of water or wine that barrel can hold is going to be set by the shortest stave. Sure. So I like to think of, I, I learned this in soil fertility, Liebig's barrel, the law of the minimum, the idea that whatever nutrient is there in the least amount relative to requirement is going to set effective yield. And until you address that limiting factor, you're not going to get effective or economic response and may even cause toxicity. If you, you know, if phosphorus, I'm just going to make it up. If phosphorus is limiting and you dump a bunch of mang manganese onto it, which is clearly crazy, you will cause a manganese toxicity sure. and not get, okay, fine. The limiting stave today in public health, I'm convinced, is hyperinsulinemia insulin resistance. And I'm really compelled by Ben Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick, and so many others, that until we address that, any of these other factors, which may well be there, but how can you say so? When you've got a signal in the data that's, you know, a foot tall, and you're talking about something that might be an inch at the bottom... It's hard to pull that out. I mean, maybe your requirement for that one inch thing or your sensitivity to that is being affected by this one foot tall peak. And we see that in terms of mineral requirements and vitamin requirements when we overload people with processed carbohydrates, right? Suddenly, okay, you have, you need more of those to deal with, uh, the processed carbohydrates than you would if you didn't have the processed carbohydrates. So we, I think, need to kind of take a step back and say, what do we know from the data? We need to work with individuals and say, well, okay, once you've done all this, are you where you want to be? Well, maybe you need to tweak something else. But that's sort of individual approach. That's not population recommendations. Um, so that's kind of the approach that I'm involved with here. And again, we're facing some difficulties coming forward in terms of food prices. And so how are we going to help people adopt this lifestyle when, you know, they're going to face economic stress, let alone availability in their markets, wherever they happen to live, whatever's appropriate to them. Right. I mean, those things of affordability, access and appropriate to their, you know, lifestyle choices. How are we going to navigate the next several years, which I'm convinced is what we're looking at in terms of elevated food prices? So I, I, I don't want to kind of minimize that, but that that is my answer to those sorts of concerns. I interviewed a like a manager of the, in the beef industry that manages a lot of the supply chain and he with regards to the antibiotics it was it was a again another just oh that's a logical answer but he said hey it's, it's not like antibiotics are cheap and we're not trying to just give it to everybody or all the animals it's expensive mm -hmm. what are some of the recommendations you have i mean if 
if meat prices are soaring, how do we? Well, so um, there's there's a couple places, one of which I just came across. So, of course, I can't remember it, but it's out of Cornell University and it's a website that's intended to help people find local meat producers okay. of various uh, breeds. And I'll send you the link to that. Okay. There's a couple other listings, things like that. Obviously there's the, you know, farmer's markets, if if that's an option, but, you know, ultimately if, if eating 80, 20 and lost leader eggs, you know, is what you can afford to do, you know, canned tuna, canned salmon, if, you know, finding all meat hot dogs, on sale, you know, all meat, lunch meats to, to make sure that we're not getting unintended fillers. A lot of times, and especially as it becomes more expensive, if we keep an eye on that section of the meat case where stuff starts getting marked down, you know, we're just going to have to start practicing those uh, skills that used to be taught in in what used to be called home economics. And there's some great publications too. If you start looking for that kind of stuff online, people from the universities spent decades teaching people how to, you know, cook various pieces of meat and, and how to, uh, one of the things I, you know, how to include meat in the diet or something like that, which I found interesting. It's like, yeah, okay, a couple decades ago, you were assuming that was the thing we needed to do. But part of, you know, spam itself becomes an item for us. But like bacon, you wouldn't make a whole meal out of it, but it could add to. And, and that's one of the things that, and I understand that people who are on some kind of an elimination protocol or who have found that, you know, no plant source food is how they do best, but other people may not be in that case. And so for them, whatever plants they can tolerate, but add in sufficient animal source food to provide the essential nutrition to complement what's there. And so that also then becomes on us as we advocate to not give someone the message, oh, you just need to eat ribeye every day and that's all, you know, anything else is not acceptable. Right. I mean, that, that's as much a non-starter for me as the, it needs to be all, what, what was the Ken Berry approach? It needs to be, you know, panda massaged and watered <laughs> with unicorn tears. And um, no, no, it doesn't. So we're, you know, again, is the only supermarket near you a Dollar General? Well, thank God for Dollar General stores right. that are in some of these communities yes. that people can go to because you can find things there. And I've also found that as people buy or express their desire, those stores change their stocking patterns. Yes. So there's that in in terms of one source of information, and I have to give this shout out just because of my background. In every county within the United States, or there's an office serving your county, it may not be in your county, but it'll be nearby, is a cooperative extension service office okay. that's part of your land-grant university. Okay, and in there, there should be information that's free or at some low cost on food preservation, on gardening, on small livestock, on whatever. Now, 
It's been my experience. A lot of that information, when you get to diet, it's going to be pretty heavily influenced by dietary guidelines, yeah. but they're also looking for input from their community because they're supposed to be a two-way, mm-hmm. not just from the university down. They're supposed to be from the community back. Right. And one of my colleagues said, they're always looking for people to serve on their advisory boards. Mm -hmm. And so if people want to affect change, then that might be a way to get in and say, well, you know, it seems like we've got this diabetes problem in this community. And what is your information on that? And, And then sort of take that conversation on and maybe drive some change upwards. So first things first, feed your family. And then look for places where you can have an impact in your community. And if that goes well, then tell other people about it. And maybe your your impact can spread beyond your community. Do you think the price will start settling down or this whole fear mongering towards meat will subside a little bit? Or do you think the prices are going to continue to keep rising? Again, pull that apart. I see evidence that the you know plant pucks craze is, has crested. Okay. Right. So McDonald's is not pleased oh, yeah, with right. the performance. Right. Um, and I think as people learn more and more that in no way are those a replacement for ground meat products. Yes. And and so I think that that is going to sort it out. But in terms of price, you know, um, we've had fertilizer prices at near record. Well, at record and near record prices. A couple months ago, what, two months ago, they've come down a little bit. But, you know, then I read that BASF, which is one of the world's largest manufacturers of ammonia, has announced that they're restricting their production. Mostly that's coming out of Europe and Germany Mm -hmm. because they need natural gas to do that. And there's natural gas supply interruptions in Europe now. Um, but ammonia is used to make nitrogen fertilizer. So that upward trend started before the conflict in, in Ukraine mm-hmm. because of tight energy conditions. So that's now going to continue regardless of what happens in Ukraine. Brazil, for example, is the world's largest importer of fertilizer. So we at least have some manufacturing. They don't, or certainly not to the degree that we do. Phosphate and potassium are also uh, high price, but ammonia is used in a lot of things. Diesel prices are high. Mm. We've got a drought taking place. So between inputs and drought, we have some reduction in the cattle herd. So if anything, that's maybe some downward pressure or keeping the upward pressure lower than it would be. And when that's gone, then you've got reduced cattle herds. So I see higher prices into the future uh, for that. So, you know, we're going to have to live with this for a while. And again, um, but it's, as we know, it doesn't all have to be beef, right. but you know the price of price of beef affects pork, and pork affects yeah. beef, and you know all these things are interconnected, even when they're not directly connected. So I, I see all that uh, in our near term future. 
One thing you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, and I want to make sure we touch upon it, is you wanted to talk about the different proteins. Was there anything specific you wanted to bring up? Well, I think we've touched on it. And I did give a presentation at Low Carb San Diego last year. Okay. It got posted on the Low Carb Down Under channel. Okay. Uh, when is protein, quote, not protein? And, and basically... Uh, we have for many, 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 many years been um, characterizing the feed or food. And one of those characterizations is crude protein, mm-hmm. so that we would determine total nitrogen okay. in a substance. We would make that into a percent nitrogen value. We'd multiply that number by 6.25 to convert it into crude protein. Okay. Assuming that all the nitrogen that was there was in protein and all that protein was 16% nitrogen. And that certainly is cheaper than determining actual amino acids. It It's something, like I say, we've got a lot of data because we've been doing it for a long time. So we've got big data banks. Um, but basically, when you look at a food label or you look at a food table or you look at a tracker, it's crude protein. Mm. And it's not true protein, let alone the amino acids that you require. So again, there's, there's levels of sophistication here that haven't sort of gotten into a lot of the public conversation. That just needs to be understood and accepted. And that talk I gave is an introduction to all that. And there's been researchers working on all this for a long time. Uh, It has an impact on environmental conversations. Again, for the reasons that, you know, we haven't been fairly crediting the value of the animal source foods and then comparing them to protein yield from, and then you name it. As people are thinking about how much protein to eat, one of the things to keep in mind is all of those published targets at some point assume this is high quality protein or another phrase is reference protein. Okay. And when you dig into what those definite, the definitions of those terms, it's meat, eggs, dairy, seafood, but they don't want to say meat, eggs, dairy, seafood for whatever reason. So they call it high quality or they call it reference. And then there's a whole thing we could talk about RDA being not a target. It's a minimum. Right. So you know, people should not fear protein just as they should not fear fat. They should prioritize that part of the plate. Um, and then whatever they're able to tolerate can be added to that. And we we have to get past the protein foods because that's how they've included these other foods, uh, the vegetal sources. And just get back to, in my mind, meat, eggs, dairy. Well, what is it? Yeah, be sure to take your meds, meat, eggs, dairy, seafood, whatever suits, whatever fits, whatever you can afford. And and understanding that difference, I think, is critical. And there's more information available. And I'm not a, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist, um, except for ruminants. And you and I ain't ruminants. So, okay. Um, so nobody should take anything I say as medical advice. But I'm happy to share sources. And that's what I do a lot of, to just try to get the information out to a wider audience. And if I can help someone like you, working with people who are saying, yeah, but right. and it's like, no, no, no. Yeah. But yeah, is 
the full answer. Stop. Okay. Yes, you're going to do this and we're going to see what the result is. And if you're concerned about some of these other things, then I know this guy who can send me stuff or you can talk to him or whatever, but don't, don't let that become an excuse for not improving your own health and your life and your family's life and your community. I love it. Thank you. I think it's like you said, I'm team human too, in that sense, you brought up so many things to think about and um, I, I really think it's so important that we look at the big mountain in front of us, which may be insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, instead of thinking of all these little nuances. And for every individual, those things may matter, but from a wider population and really how do we heal our communities? It's really focusing on meats and not worrying about these smaller things. And, and even if we do think about sustainability and all the other things with climate, but we have to consider all factors. And when we consider all factors, it really does come down to us eating meat for our own health. And then if we are in good health, we can take care of the lands, right? It's, mm-hmm. I think it's so important, a lot of what you said. So thank you so much for all the content. And I will put that talk about protein in our show notes and everything else, but where can people find you and you know all the good information that you share? Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for what you're doing. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at grass-based I have a Facebook page called Grass-Based Health, a pretty dormant blog that I need to resurrect by the same name. Uh, You can find me on YouTube, uh, Peter Ballerstead, and you can email me at peter.ballerstead at gmail.com. Basically, if you look for Ballerstead, you should find me. If you find somebody else named Ballerstead that ain't me, I want to meet them because they're probably kin. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much again. I'll put all your information in the show notes. And I I love so much of what you brought up today because I, I I started nutritional therapy school and it was all about grass finished and getting the highest quality. And as I worked with individuals, it didn't move the needle that much. And Mm -hmm. I love what you're sharing because really we should focus on wellness for all. It shouldn't be an economical thing. For some people, maybe they need to eat certain kinds of meats and a variety, but it really, we need to really look at the bigger issue at hand. And um, I just thank you for a lot of our discussion. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. There's just so much to think about when it comes to sustainability, environment, the types of meats we choose, and even what we share in terms of our community. If we really want to get to healing, We should first focus on the big mountain, which may be hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance. Instead of bickering over PUFAs or fructose or the levels of fruit in our meat-based diet. While for us specifically, those little lovers will help us. But if we think of wellness and the human health and the degradation of health as a whole in our population, we really need to focus on that a meat-based or meat-focused diet is so important for human health and for the betterment of all our communities. I'd love to live in a culture where one day animal foods are revered again as the first and foremost foods we must be eating. And then we can have a society with less mental health illness, less metabolic syndrome, and generally just happier people that really want to serve our neighbors and be happy overall. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys.
Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.